Policy Beyond Borders. Welcome to Policy Beyond Borders, a podcast series on geopolitics and international relations by Center for Public Policy Research (CPPR), where we bring to you podcasts with insightful discussions and newer perspectives on a wide range of topics of contemporary relevance, with experts to discuss, deconstruct, and advocate for things that matter. Podcast episodes of Policy Beyond Borders by CPPR are on Spotify. Amazon Music, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast and on cppr.in. Hello everyone. This is Neelima, Associate Research from Center for Public Policy Research. We are kicking things off with our very first episode of Policy Beyond Borders and in this edition, we are delving into the journey of India's foreign policy over the past 76 years. Tune in and let's get started. Just last year we commemorated 75 years of this trajectory looking ahead from 2022 to 2024 prime minister narendra modi has termed this era as amritkal symbolizing india's path to its centenary the central aim of india's foreign policy have encompassed the protection of national security the advancement of economic growth the national interest and the projection of india's influence on the global matters Throughout these 76 years since gaining independence India has demonstrated notable dynamism in its foreign policy choices while upholding its strategic independence Today I am joined by Ambassador TP Srinivasan former ambassador and permanent representative of India to United Nations Vienna and governor for India of the International Atomic Energy Agency Vienna He was in the Indian Foreign Service for 37 years and has nearly 20 years of experience in multilateral diplomacy and has represented India at a number of international conferences organized by the United Nations, the Commonwealth and the Non-Aligned Movement. Welcome to Policy Beyond Borders Ambassador. Thank you. Thank you Nilam. So so starting with uh, 19 in 1967 you have entered the realm of foreign service. but winding back to the time of emergence of india's independence where india started its own foreign policy after the independence from colonial rule non alignment was a major strategy the doctrine of non alignment emerged as a pivotal pillar in india's foreign policy during that era however there were critics of this strategy as well nonetheless the essence of this age old doctrine has not been entirely eradicated approximately a decade ago a consortium of india's foremost policy intellectuals released a comprehensive document titled non alignment 2.0 this white paper now appearing almost visionary in hindsight envisaged that india's achievement as a prosperous culturally diverse democracy would profoundly shape forthcoming prospects of humanity Even the present government itself straightly and outrightly shows that India is not aligned as seen in the stance taken for Russia Ukraine issue or the China Taiwan conflict. So you are a person with a lot of experience and have witnessed all these different phases of India's foreign policy. So how do you conceptualize this contemporary resurgence of the non-alignment principle? Well, I would say that the non-aligned principle established by Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru in 19 47 has remained alive all these years till today 
when Pandit Nehru, Jawaharlal Nehru announced it, there was considerable welcome for it among the newly independent countries. So it received very warm welcome. And uh, India came in the forefront of the Monolay movement. And this continued till 1962. After Chinese aggression, we suffered a setback in our international reputation because we appeared to be fragile and uh, not being able to safeguard our borders. Uh, so like this, many things have happened between then and now. But most recently, Mr. Jayashankar said in another context that non-alignment is not negotiable. So what is the difference between 1947 and now? It is still non-alignment. But just be, it has undergone a, a tremendous change in the understanding of it. In fact, first of all, the word non-alignment was not a very happy phrase. Because what we meant was not that we will not be aligned to anybody or friendly to anybody. And it sounded like a negative concept. But it was really not so. And that is why this has now been revised to strategic autonomy. And that is not any different from non-alignment as we understood it. It was really the independence of judgment and freedom of action. So even today, we follow the same principle in strategic autonomy, independence of decision-making and also freedom in action. So during this period, we may have become close to one country or the other. We may have faced the constraint of having to make judgments on something which you would normally not have, et cetera, et cetera. That's a long story. But my basic point I want to make is non-alignment even now is part of India's foreign policy, but it has assumed different significance and we call it now strategic autonomy. Thank you, sir, for that insightful uh, comment on this. Uh, where you importantly highlighted non-alignment is still part of India's foreign policy, but in a different way, that is the strategic autonomy. Now, coming to the Indian economy. The Indian economy was inspired by socialism principles for most of its independent history with the state ownership of many sectors. The economy has faced a lot of challenges even in feeding its population under the 1980s. Then the path towards the liberalization came where after the 1991, India has progressed towards a free market economy with industrialization and expansion in the role of private and foreign investment. So at present, India has emerged as the fifth largest economy. A lot of uh, forecasts and reports by IMF, Goldman Sachs, etc. has come up with a study that India will be the fastest growing economy in the future as well. So as a person in the service, you have actually seen all the evolution in the economic sector of India. So can you shed some light on the economic diplomacy of India over these decades? I would say that we were not attracted by any kind of socialist ideology. And that is why we did not join either of the two blocks. But the important thing at that time for India was to utilize its resources in an intelligent manner. Because when you do not have enough, you have to plan more. And therefore, Pandit Nehru was attracted to the 10-year plans of the Soviet Union. And so it was not a socialist inclination or, a, or an anxiety to follow the Soviet Union. But the fact that our resources are limited, and therefore we have to plan it according to our priorities. So 
when we opened up the economy in 1990, this was nothing strange for us because there are plenty of private enterprises already in India. Nobody stopped Tata's or Birla's from making money or uh, contributing to the national wealth. So we had nothing against any particular economic system. But what prompted us to follow a planned economy was basically because of the need for us to utilize our resources in intelligent manner. And that is why the fifth year, five-year plan was adopted. But at the same time, simultaneously, uh, the open economy or uh, you know private enterprise was already prevalent in India. But what happened in 1990 was that we lost our closest uh, friend, close, closest uh, country in uh, cooperation with us because of the level of the economic development in India and the Soviet Union. At that time, Soviet Union was the only country which was willing to and wanting to buy India's consumer goods. Western countries would not even look at the kind of things that we were producing at that time, except for handicrafts and handlooms and some fancy stuff, which is considered to be, you know, uh, India's cultural heritage, etc. They were not interested in anything that we produce, whether it is Panama cigarettes or Ludhiana sweaters or whatever. But Soviet Union was willing to buy those because their own economic development and their own consumerism had not reached a level which was beyond India's level. So we had this happy situation where we could sell our consumer goods to the Soviet Union and buy from them the most essential infrastructure and defense material. And this was a God-given privilege that we had. We did not have foreign exchange to purchase this from elsewhere. And we were not able to ex export anything substantial abroad. And therefore, we had this tremendous opportunity to have some kind of a barter deal with the Soviet Union. And we got all that we needed, whether it's steel plants or aircraft manufacture or shipping or even IITs. You know, so, so many things which were vital for the development of the country were available to us from the Soviet Union. And when Soviet Union collapsed, we were absolutely bewildered. I remember sitting in Mr. Narasim Rao's room and looking at him. And it looked as though he had lost something, lost the world. That was the feeling that he had at that time. But he very quickly adjusted itself to the situation, thanks to Dr. Manmohan Singh as finance minister, and created a revolution. And that revolution was absolutely being pushed into the water and made to swim. We had no rules and regulations to, to regulate that because we were only over-regulating things in order to restrain expenditure, etc. So very quickly, we developed a culture for open, liberalized, and globalized economy. So we started what I call a globalized foreign policy at that time. We had an idealistic foreign policy up to 1962. We had a pragmatic policy up to 1990. And we had, finally, we had a globalized foreign policy, which made us change several things, our relationship with Israel, our position on Palestine, our position on Indian Ocean. All these underwent subtle changes. I was in the UN during the Cold War. And I was also in the UN when we changed our policies in 1992. It was like my 
hardware had not changed, but my software had changed. The kind of speeches that we were making on the economic growth of India changed. What we started talking about the Indian Ocean, where foreign and foreign navies should not, should not come, we changed it to welcoming them. We started collaborating with various open societies and in, we sought investment. So what I'm saying is that this was nothing extraordinarily alien to us. And therefore, we were able to adjust ourselves to the new requirement of India and the opportunity we got now that having established our fundamental structures, we were able to welcome investments into, into India. And also we, were, we had sufficient number of things to export also, uh, not only consumer goods, but also some basic technology stuff also our uh, exports were acceptable to developed countries. So that is how this change took place in the economy. And we reached an 11% growth rate at that time from the so-called Hindu growth of 3% before that. So it was a wise decision and we have proceeded on that. But at the same time, the public sector occupies a pride of place in the Indian economy. And therefore it is not that it is free for all in India. We have a regulated uh, open uh, collaboration and cooperation with other countries. And also, we have liberalized the economy and we have um, uh, developing in a rapid manner, though it may have slowed down later. But it was initially a, a great success and that was the right decision, both in foreign policy as well as in economic policy. We made a big change. Thank you so much, sir. It was great hearing from you as a person who has witnessed all these, the economic evolution of India. So uh, what are the other existing challenges that you think that India currently faces in its foreign policy? Well, the first, first and most important challenge is China. No question about it. The second is our neighborhood. And the third is the remaining block politics in the world. So these three things are biggest challenges to India. And these appear off and on, and we have to invent solutions for it. But in all these, we stuck to the position that we will not become uh, an ally of any country. And over the years as a non-aligned country, we developed that uh, art of being friendly to countries and uh, being beneficial, getting their benefits without our being too close to them in policy. And also similarly, we have maintained that we would be independent of, the, uh, of any kind of uh, block politics. And we remained, we did not remain neutral, but we remained on the right side of history as we understood it. Of course, we were criticized for all this, but at the same time, you can see as it was illustrated during the Russia-Ukraine war, that those who came to scoff remain to pray, as they say, because people were saying that India is neutral and is immoral, etc., etc. But finally, Mr. Biden said after the Bali summit that, right, India's position was useful for us in com com coming to a consensus. Of course, that consensus was broken up and we are now looking for a new consensus. But the fact that India was not condemning every anybody or praising anybody for anything wrong they have done. We were able to 
talk to both. And that was the merit of the situation. And so it was really tested. But in the case of China and Pakistan, these do not work. China's case, their intention is to dominate the world. And that goes contrary to our own idea of an Afro-Asian solidarity and, and connected relationship among developing countries. But China's objective is to ensure what they famously call the teaching India a lesson. So this teaching India a lesson, they have never defined what it is. But we know that it is that India cannot be the dominant power in Asia. And that is the reason why they invited us in 62, demolished our image, and then made us feel, uh, you know, a, a regret that we had not built up an army or made preparations for it. So that's a lesson we learned. But after that, we have learned that lesson and we follow that in terms of preparation, in terms of our strengthening of our defenses, and also finding the right friends at the right moment. And that also has come out of our traditional policy of strategic autonomy. So these challenges we are able to meet. But in the case of Pakistan and China, none of these seems to work because China's interest is to make sure that India does not become powerful or strong and to keep the line of actual control open without determining the borders. It gives them an excuse to keep bothering us and keep trying to demoralize, etc. But we have developed the tactics for that. Now, first of all, we have shown willingness to discuss any issue at any time. Secondly, we are strengthening our military capabilities. Thirdly, we are trying to, um, what shall we say, uh, distance ourselves from China in the economic field. Because we have not found it very uh, successful. Because uh, in India, people cannot even live without TikTok. So we had to we had to reinstate TikTok, and China started, you know, making money out of us once again, and similarly in pharmaceuticals. So this distancing from China economically has not worked because right across the border we have a market which is very suitable for us. So that is where the problem with China is happening, and so the important thing is for us to first of all get China to vacate the posts that they have occupied, and then have a more rational relationship with China, not where they have $80 billion per, you know, balance of payment against us. And that is not helpful to us. So we need to work constantly on that. As far as Pakistan is concerned, we have taken a very strong line that we will not talk to them unless they give up terrorism as a state policy. So they are willing to talk, but they are not willing to give up terrorism. And unlike the previous prime ministers who made concessions, okay, we'll talk once, twice, etc. Prime Minister Modi has stuck to his guts. And he insists that we'll talk only when you give up terrorism. So on Pakistan, there's a complete standstill. Except for a little nuisance here and there, that is not an issue for us. But the issue for us for the future, maybe 30, 40 years, is China versus India and what kind of equations we'll finally establish. Okay, great, sir. Uh, you highlighted uh, three important challenges of India and where 
right now china and pakistan are still a challenge and will be a challenge in the future as well so as we step into the 77th year i am interested in understanding the perspective of a foreign officer so could you please elaborate on the present priorities of india's foreign policy and provide us some insights into what might characterize the eighth decade of india's foreign policy well i wish i was an astrologer <laughs> <laughs> but i can tell you a few things first of all mr narendra modi was the first prime minister to define national interest for india no other prime minister had said they all said that we have to we have to protect our national interests and that is our policy etc so but that is not uh, what prime minister modi said when he came to power he established four priorities for india number 1 security number 2 development number 3 um neighborhood our neighborhood and the fourth indian diaspora so these four things he he established as his priorities and if you look at all the 52 countries he visited in the first year or first one year and a half you will see that each of these countries had a relevance to india in these four priority areas and out of all this all these priority areas were relevant in the case of the united states so he had no hesitation in spite of the fact that he was denied a, a visa for several years by the us administration he plunged into a good relationship with the united states and he succeeded in it and brought its relationship by 2016 to a high level that is when he said now we have a new symphony we had an orchestra ready but the symphony was wrong and so he said here we have a new symphony in our relationship and we became a close defense partner of the united states so in other words he has followed a policy of protecting our interest in a defined manner and he has not hesitated to make concessions to some of the principles that we had held here. like for example we were never uh, able to sign all those fundamental agreements that the united states wanted for a, a close and friendly country but he went on and signed them he understood the implications of it but he did not hesitate to sign them even though it may have restricted the use of the arms we get them from or more openness about our foreign policy all this because during the nuclear deal there itself dr manmohan singh had made several concessions in fact at one point it was even said though nobody followed it that india will follow broadly the american foreign policy recommendations it was written in a in a us congress resolution which we accepted but all those were peripheral so he understood the need for us to follow these four and he has followed them whether it is with the united states whether it is with russia whether it is with europe or whether it is with the developing world and so our priorities are clear and that is why we were moving moving ahead i have a book called more diplomacy about the first 5 years i don't know whether you have seen that i had seen that as a kind of a shakespearean play you know in a shakespearean play the you know story builds up slowly it reaches an excitement it reaches a crescendo then complications arise and everything has to be resolved and in the end if there are too many dead bodies that's a tragedy and if there are many weddings it becomes a comedy this is the, this is a shakespearean pattern and 
That is what happened to Mr. Modi in those five years. And finally, he won the election on a point of uh, success and a point of dealing with his, India's interests. So his election, so second term, was actually determined by the successes in foreign policy also. That's the point I'm making. So, so, how do you characterize the decade of India's foreign policy? Well, as I said, uh, I'm not an astrologer and the uh, world does not change, stand still. Most unexpected things happen, like uh, at the beginning of the 21st century, we had four mishaps. One is the 9-11, the second is the economic collapse, the third is the, uh, the, the pandemic, and the fourth is the Russia-Ukraine war. All these four have, have uh, destroyed all the calculations we had in our foreign policy. All these were challenges which were unanticipated. And therefore, we had to readjust our foreign policy, even while staying close to those four principles which were outlined. We had to make very many changes. Like, for example, the 9-11. It changed the whole calculus of power. The country may have the capacity to destroy the world over for 52 times, but still it can be beaten by 10 people without any arms on, in their hands. That is what 9-11 proved. So it destroyed the concept of mutually assured destruction because we could not even uh, you know, deal with terrorism after that, after many years. People keep talking about terrorism, but the the the, the losses that humanity sustained on 9-11 is being forgotten. But certainly terrorism has reduced, but, the, but there is no comprehensive convention against terrorism even today. Similarly, the economic issues. It was resolved in a certain sense, thanks to Dr. Manmohan Singh, 2007-2008, but many of those uh, evils of the economic collapse still remain. On uh, the, uh, the pandemic, what was proved was that United Nations was not able to work together on that issue. Such a threat to international peace and security. Security Council could not even meet once. So it proved that United Nations Security Council and the UN itself are not capable of dealing with the threats of the future. And that is something that we have learned. And as far as Russia, Ukraine is concerned, it depends how long it will last, whether it will lead to poverty and devastation and lack of energy and hunger in the world, or whether it will recover from it, it will depend on when it will end. So our foreign policy, in the light of these four developments, have changed a new meaning and a new understanding. Uh, we had felt, or I had said in my book, that what India would like is a multipolar world, not a bipolar or, the, or, a, or a unipolar world. Unipolar world. We wanted a multipolar world in which United States, Russia, European Union, Japan, China, and India will be the six ports. These were identified. And all of these countries were looking for what the countries will be around them as a port. So who will be around India in a new arrangement? 
it had to be major countries, not just Bhutan and um, Mauritius. But we thought that Russia, Germany, France, etc., would be the new non-aligned. And that was our expectation. And thus created a multipolar world. But the agreement between Russia and China in February completely destroyed this world. Now Russia is completely with China. So where do we go? We, we cannot depend on Russia because their, their agreement with China is an absolute one and a limitless one. And therefore, they are bound to support China in any conflict with us or anywhere, anywhere else. So that is something that we have to plan for. And that is something that we have to work for and see alternatives to that, that arrangement. But we still believe in a multipolar world. And that is why people say we are building multi-alignments. They are not alignments, but they are basically uh, finding out identical situations or identical uh, um, positions with various countries and trying to cooperate them in those specific areas. But the most, the latest development in this was the Quad. The other three countries of the Quad, you know them, Australia, US, and Japan, they're already aligned. They're already allied countries of the United States. So a lot of pressure was put on us for us to accept that uh, alliance of the Quad. But we resisted it. And even after we resisted it, when the offer came to us that, okay, you are not our ally. We don't want you to become an ally in the formal sense. But we are willing, willing to give you technology, weapons, etc., which we do not give to non-NATO countries. Would you accept that? And we accepted. So like in 1971, Mrs. Gandhi fought the Bangladesh war with the support of the Soviet Union. But today, we are preparing to deal with China in a kind of comfortable group of democratic countries in the Indo-Pacific. And so this is the kind of trend that uh, we can now anticipate. We will have good relations with Russia, we may have uh, good relations with others, but at the same time, if there is, if the future of the world is a conflict between democracies and autocracies, we cannot but be on the side of the democracies. And that is what I envisage for the future. Uh, thank you, sir. You you clearly highlighted how PM Modi is the first PM to define the national interest and the four priorities he mentioned, that is the security, development, neighborhood, and the Indian diaspora for India. Uh, thank you, Ambassador, for such an engaging conversation. After absorbing these numerous insights from you within this limited time, it, I, always, I almost feel like I've experienced the span of these 76 years myself in such a short period of time. We have covered a lot of important aspects of non-alignment, economy of India, the challenges India face, and what are the forthcoming priorities of India's foreign policy. With that, we have come to the end of this episode. Get ready for another episode that will really make you think, diving into strategically and geopolitically relevant issue across the globe. Until then, it's me, Nilima, signing off. our podcast series Policy Beyond Borders by CPPR on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast and also on the CPPR website www.cppr.in.